Bobby, you um, you've done a lot of great work, but right now, one of your biggest missions is shining a light on this vaccine issue. You want to talk about birds for a second? Yeah, yeah. sure. If you want, I'd love to That's, hear about this. Yeah, I really want to talk about that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of Hotbox, and I'm Evan Britton. And I'm Mike Tyson. Mike, we've got an American heirloom in here. This is a very interesting situation we have here. This, yes, absolutely. Robert F. Kennedy Jr., welcome to the Hotbox, my brother. Thank you for having me, Evan, Mike. Oh, no, no, thank you. I'm just happy you're here. Listen, we were going to, um, listen... We were going to start at that stuff that Evan was talking about, but I want to go. I want to go early, some real early stuff with you. Uh-huh. Listen, I was raised by a guy <clears throat> that was born in 1908. Mm. So by the time he's um, 12 years old or something, 20, yeah, 20 years old, 1920. By the time he's by the time he's 20. His his family name, Joe Kennedy, is a powerhouse, a juggernaut in America. Mm. You know, so I'm a 14-year-old kid, 13, and I'm being raised in a household with um, an immigrant Ukrainian woman that's 80 years old at the time, 85 probably, and Cus was 75, 78 at the time. And talk, they talk about the experience and all the, the rumors that they heard about your grandfather. And so your grandfather, more so than anybody, because of his relationships with the people that he was related to, had the relationships with, blew my mind when I was a young kid. Mm. I didn't even know a person like that could exist. It was like royalty in America, yeah. right? You must have heard those stories, too. Well, I know a lot of stories about my family, uh, <laughs> of course. Yeah, he was, man, he was really... And I mean, I, my grandfather, I was very close to my grandfather when I was a little boy. Let me just say this, excuse my voice. I had a very, very strong voice till I was 42 years old, and I got a disease called spasmodic dystonia. And it makes my voice tremble, particularly when I first start talking. Usually when my voice warms up, it gets better. So hopefully it will get better. But in the morning, like you know, right now, it's often really bad. But my, um, you know, I, my grandfather and grandmother were, Joseph Kennedy and Rose Kennedy were major figures in my life. Um, we were all raised, all of their 29 grandchildren, kind of as one family. They had nine kids. Mm. 29 grandchildren. We were all raised in adjoining houses in a little village, a seaside village in Hyannisport. And we would go from when I was very, very young. He had a, my grandfather had a horse farm in Barnstable about 10 miles away. And he would take us horseback riding every morning. So we would get up at 6 and we would ride with him and then we would come home and eat breakfast and then go to Mass with my grandmother. She went to daily Mass usually twice a day. And, um, you know, she was very interested in history and particularly American history. They were Irish Catholics from Boston. They eventually left Massachusetts because of the, um, the bigotry towards Irish 
My grandmother's father was the first Irish Catholic mayor of Boston, Honey Fitz. They called him Honey Fitz. Yeah, because he had a beautiful voice. He had a beautiful singing voice. And he would summons people. She, my grand great-grandmother, Josie Fitzgerald, who I knew, um, did not want to be involved in politics. So my grandfather and my great-grandfather, Honey Fitz, relied on his daughter, Rose Kennedy, and she could speak seven languages, and she could play the piano beautifully. He would have torchlight parades in Boston where they would have a flat car that was hauled by mules and there was a piano on it. And she would play the piano and uh, Honey Fitz would sing Sweet Adeline and summons the crowd. And, um, you know, he was a very, very popular mayor. One of his political rivals was Patrick Joseph Kennedy, who was another Irishman. They, they're parents all came over in 1848 during the famine to Boston. My great-great-grandfather on my, um, on, you know, Joseph Kennedy's grandfather was a cooper, which means he made barrels. Hmm. And then they, his family started a bar, and then they went into, he went into politics. And Patrick Joseph Kennedy was a politician, a rival of Honey Fitz, but they were friends. And their children married. And um, my grandfather, Joseph Kennedy, was one of the first um, Irish Catholics to go to Harvard. People say that he was involved in bootlegging, but it's not true. That story, in fact, was uh, invented by a guy called Sam Halpern, who was a CIA official after my... Uh, uncle after President Kennedy's death, and he had a job of of besmirching the Kennedy family name for about forty years, and that's one of the um, you know that's one of the things that he invented about my grandfather. My grandfather was a, a uh, he was the youngest banker in the world. Yeah, uh, when he was twenty four years and he old, was ambassador as well to England, huh? and he became ambassador to England. He was the only wealthy Democrat. Uh, to support Franklin Roosevelt. He was the only wealthy Wall Street person to support Franklin Roosevelt, and he became Roosevelt's treasurer mm. and did a um, a national whistle-stop tour with Roosevelt. And then when Roosevelt was trying to solve the collapse on Wall Street, he created the SEC, the Securities and Exchange Commission, and since my grandfather was the only business person on his team, he became the head of the SEC. And they, you know, they restored faith in Wall Street. And kind of as a reward for that, my grandfather was given the post of ambassador to England. Mm, wow. So that's his story, huh? That's part of it. <laughs> <laughs> so this guy is Sam Halpern. Yeah, and I've written a book. That I actually gave you guys. Yeah, I'm stoked to dive yet. into that. Yeah, I know you haven't read it yet because I only gave it to you five minutes ago. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, but if the book is really a chronicle of my family's 60 year battle with the CIA. Interesting. And wow. it, Did that yeah. start with your grandfather? It started with my grandfather. You would think with the reputation that Joe Kennedy had that he was part of the CIA. Uh, he didn't like the CIA. And then my uncle John Kennedy, my grandfather sat on a commission 
um, during the uh, during the Eisenhower administration, and he said it was called the Hoover Commission, and it was also called the David Bruce Commission, and they looked at what the CIA was doing with its secret operations around the world, and they thought it was a catastrophe for America and for democracy. My grandfather had a very strong belief that America could not be an imperial power abroad and continue to be a democracy at home. He felt that if we continued to be a military power abroad, we were going to become a national security state at home and we would lose our democratic rights, which is exactly what So what, what do you think we became? I think that what he predicted is what we become. I think we're a national security state now and we're... Huh. We've devolved away from democracy more and more towards a corporate kleptocracy. And, um, you know, Eisenhower, on my birthday in 1960, just Eisenhower gave his last speech in political office just before my uncle took the oath of office. And Eisenhower warned America that the greatest threat to democracy was not a foreign enemy, but the military-industrial complex, mm. which he said would rob everything that we value about this country. And I think my uncle spent the next three years fighting against the military and the intelligence apparatus. Um, and I think, you know, and he was killed, and then my father ran for office campaigning against that cartel um, campaigning against the Vietnam War and he was also killed and I think our country since that time has been um, going down the path of you know of becoming a national security state all right we're going to take a quick break so you know sports are on hiatus with everything going on in the world but it doesn't mean that there's nothing to bet on now our hot boxing good friends and exclusive partners bet online have all the action major league baseball continues to push through the summer and there's no shortage of ways to get in on the action on bet online has hundreds of odds features for you to bet on take advantage of every sport and remember, our casino never closes. It. It's always there for you to check out and enjoy. Bet online, your online sportsbook expert. Hey, <laughs> that's betonline.ag, and don't forget that promo code podcast one for your sign up bonus. So interesting, Eisenhower warned against that as a general. It is, but you know, it's historically it has been. The people who actually experienced war in this country, the presidents who actually experienced war, who have done the most to try to keep us out of war. And my uncle, President Kennedy, is an example. You know, he was, and his brother was killed in the war. Joe Kennedy Sr. Joe Kennedy Jr. His his brother-in-law, my aunt Kick's husband, was killed right at the beginning of the war. Um, uh, Andrew Cavendish, and um, and then he lost a lot of his crew, and he was lost at sea and, and presumed dead after his ship was run over by a Japanese destroyer in the Blackest Straits near the Solomon Island, and he was rescued ultimately by a Solomon Island uh, native, and he... Uh, but yeah, he lost a lot of his crew, and a lot of his friends were killed. And my uncle 
was asked by Ben Bradley, who was one of his best friends, who was the publisher of the Washington Post, what do you want your epithet to be? And my uh, my uncle said he wanted his epithet to be, quote, he kept the peace, end quote. And he said that the primary job of every president, he believed, was to keep this country out of war. And he had the entire military complex of this country and the intelligence apparatus trying to get him to go into Laos, trying to get him to go into Berlin, trying to get him to go into Vietnam. And during his thousand days in office, he refused to send a single combat troop abroad. He did send 16,000 advisors, ultimately, under huge pressure to Vietnam, who technically weren't allowed to fight. But that's fewer people, fewer troops than he sent to the University of Mississippi one black man, James Meredith, admitted into that university. So it was a very, very small commitment, relatively. Mm. He also avoided the Cuban Missile Crisis. Right, and the military never forgave him for that. Or the Bay of Pigs. They wanted right. him to overthrow Castro. Yeah. And, you know, you had and the CIA that was in league with the mafia, with, you know, Sam Giancana and with Carlos Marcello and, um, and Traficante, who was the Tampa boss, all of whom had these big casinos in Havana mm. that Castro had closed. So they wanted to kill Castro and the CIA wanted to kill Castro and they made a partnership and by the end of um, by 1960 even by the time my uncle became president it was almost impossible to distinguish where the CIA ended and where the mafia began because they were so intertwined in all of their planning and operations interesting and I just, you know, I just stick to Joe Kennedy because he made all this into existence. Oh. You know? That's right. Well, that's, he why made I'm, that's why I'm a strong fan of Joe Kennedy mm. because this doesn't exist. This is his, this is his vision. Uh-huh. Before the kids even existed, this is his vision. You know, he saw those guys. He saw Rockefeller and those guys and Vanderbilt. And um, he saw those guys with all that power getting even more powerful. Uh-huh. I mean, he had, and in his mind, in some way, that he had to embatten that, and that's why he wanted the sons to be present. He wanted well, to you know, continue. my my grandmother had in their house. They had a, a bunch of newspaper articles that were mounted. A lot of pictures of Honey Fitz and Patrick Kennedy, and she had one that I remember of my uncle, of my great grandfather, Honey Fitz. Flying in one of the first biplanes. It was right after the airplane was invented, and you know, it was a picture of him flying in that plane. And she would take that picture out of the frame and show us, which was a picture from the newspaper. She would show us the back side of it, and the back side of it were classified advertisements, looking, you know, advertising for job placements. Huh. Under each of the little boxes where the advertise where the you know the the advertisement was, there was the phrase Nina N I N A, and that meant no Irish need apply. Uh. And she would show us that and say, you know, this is um, this is why we left Boston. This is why we moved to New York. Wow. 
Wow. But in the movie, The Gangs in New York, it was the Irish that didn't want the Irish to come to New York. Yeah. Oh. You know, the ones that were there already, already right. situated and had everything under control. They didn't want these Irish to come to America. Yeah. We have a complex history, Mike. I know. <laughs> I know. So would you say that um, since Joe and probably before him even, the Kennedy family has been a family for the people? Uh, well, Honey Fitz, who was, you know, the first member of our family in politics, you have to remember that in Ireland it was illegal for Catholics to hold political office. They couldn't be in any profession. Wow. They couldn't, since 1691, wow. they couldn't be an attorney. Um, they couldn't vote. They couldn't hold political office. In fact, it was illegal um, during most of that history for Irish to learn to read or write. They were slaves when they first came here, huh? When they first came here, yeah, they were. They were. Most of them came to escape the famine. And the famine was not a natural famine. It was an engineered famine because there was plenty of food in Ireland for in British warehouses for the Irish to eat, but the British would not share it with them. And the British had forced the Irish, because the Irish weren't allowed to own land. So the land was all owned by the British, and they wanted to grow the cash crop rather than subsistent crops. So they grew potatoes, which was a shippable cash crop. And when the potatoes, a mold invaded the potatoes in 1848 and destroyed them all, Millions of Irish died. Almost, I think there were six million Irish, and a million died, and two million left the country, mainly for Australia or the United States. And the Atlantic um, was called by James Joyce a bowl of bitter tears. And the Irish that landed on the shores here were mainly illiterate. James Joyce is the great Irish writer. Uh-huh. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And they were poor, but they also were tremendously interested in literature because they've been starved from it and poetry and in politics. And they took to politics like a starving man takes to food. <laughs> um, and they were naturals at it, as you know, they showed in the gangs of New York. They were. Um, they, be, they soon came to dominate almost all the urban centers in America as they flooded in, and they, you know, and and local politicians would take control. So, Honey Fitz was the first ghetto Irish to be elected in Boston, mm. and he then went to Congress, and in Congress he passed a law making it illegal to have language requirements for new immigrants because he was trying to protect the Italian immigrants because people, you know, in many parts of the United States um, there were laws being passed with an effort to keep Italians from voting and so they had to pass a literacy test and my grandfather passed a law saying you couldn't give those kind of literacy tests and anybody who's familiar with civil rights history knows that that's the way that, you know, that um, during the Jim Crow days in the South, that literacy tests were the primary mechanism for keeping African Americans from. Absolutely, absolutely. Mm. 
I am aware of that. You know, a lot of those African civil rights leaders were taught to read by um, communist civil, you know, those um, intellectual communists. But also the boards attested them in the South were, but they were all illiterate. made up of white. The majority of them was all illiterate. But even the ones who weren't illiterate, like Booker T. Washington, you know, was uh, read read the Constitution and then was quizzed on it, asked everything, you know, answered every question perfectly. He was still denied the right to vote because it was a white panel. And if a white farmer came in who couldn't read and they asked him to sign his name, they'd say, you can vote. Uh, so they had different rules applying. Listen, in all actuality, it's not, forget about politics and stuff. Just you as your life. You must have seen everything at, at all such a different level. You must have seen ass kissing at a different level. You must have seen power at a different level. Who have you seen in your house? Who came to your house? <laughs> really, who said that your family? Well, at my house. Generals? Yeah, I would say. Almost anybody. I mean, Hickory Hill, which was Royal the house. family, those guys came hang out with your guys? Not the Queen of England. No, her, her but sons all, and Virtually stuff. all the presidents have been at, you know, at my house, the house I was raised in, which was Hickory Hill, almost. Did you, you know, go to school with the Bushes and stuff? Did you no. know them coming up? No. No, you didn't. <laughs> your father knew them when he was younger, your father and your uncle. Well, huh? I knew them. I ran into them in politics. You know, I ran into them in the 1980 um, political campaigns. And um, George Bush, when he was CIA, the first President Bush, mm-hmm. my mother had a um, had a zip line at her house that was installed by the uh, by the Green Berets. My, my family was very very close to <laughs> the Green Berets because. President Kennedy, when he was president, the Pentagon did not want them to wear berets. And my uncle was, he he sort of kind of saw the special forces as a, as a peace corps with guns. And he believed that they, rightly or wrongly, that they could be used to keep us out of major wars and that they would be the equivalent of the communist guerrillas who would go into countries and convert um, you know, local populations that huh. that, the, that they would have the same role. So he believed strongly, and um, they wanted to wear a beret. The Pentagon didn't want any soldier in a beret. My uncle passed an executive order that allowed them to keep the beret. And from then on, we had a very, very close relationship to them, and they would come to our house, but they built an obstacle course at our home, including a very, very dangerous zip line that a lot of people went on that zip line. A lot of people went to the hospital because it went from the top of Hickory Hill to the bottom, and there was no break on it. Somebody had to grab the rope. And in fact, Muhammad Ali was on that and fell. Um, oh, my God. And uh, <laughs> But but George Bush went on it when he was vice president, which showed a lot of courage. <laughs> hey, did you ever meet Gene Tunney? Yes. I knew he... Um, he was close to my grandfather. I can imagine that, yeah. yeah uh, and he... You know, one of the things about him, he was a very literate man. He was the and, first one. Yeah. Well, his his son, John Tunney, whose name was Barrack Tunney or John Tunney, was my Uncle Teddy's best friend. 
Gene Tunney was a golfing. Well, that's the one that was the newscaster woman was a No, no. He was, John Tunney was senator from California. Yeah, I remember that one. And he went to University of Virginia Law School with my uncle. But mm. Gene Tunney, the fighter who, um, uh, you know, who had that famous fight with Dempsey. Dempsey, yeah. And Furpo. He became, he was. He was my grandfather, Joseph Kennedy's golfing partner. It's kind of favorite. Him and Cardinal Spellman, or Cardinal Cushing, would all golf together. Wow. And he was a literate man, and he had, I forget how many fights, but he had about 25 fights. Oh. And, he had around 77 fights. Okay. He had, before, while he was practicing for a fight, he would memorize a play of Shakespeare. Oh. And that's one of the kind of mental disciplines. That wow. He and he memorized all the plays of Shakespeare. You know, there's a book about him and George that's Bernard so cool. Shaw. They went on a vacation, a trip together. It's called, uh, well, it's called The Boxer and the Writer, The Poet, whatever, him and Jim, um, George Bernard Shaw. Yeah. They went on a trip together. Wow. <laughs> and he was golfing buddies with Joe as well. Yeah. That's crazy. That's crazy. Have you seen the movie The Irishman? Yeah. Yeah? Yes. Um, how does that ring as far as your uncle and everything? It's not, you know, I actually like that movie a lot. And I think, you know, like my kids walked out of it because it was two hours too long. But I could have watched <laughs> yeah. it for another two hours. Yeah. I, just, I, I thought it was great. It was great. I thought it was great I'm, I'm as well. just watching those actors. The other one I really liked was uh, the Tarantino movie with Once Hollywood. Upon a Time, yeah. Hollywood. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and my kids also who loved Tarantino did not like that movie. Yeah. It was, I like that. I love that movie. Yeah. I like that movie as well. And just watching those guys act, yeah, yeah. so great. Yeah, but so great. In terms of the treatment of my family, it's not historically accurate. Uh huh. Um, my the idea that. Um, Sam Giancana had anything to do with helping the Kennedys during the 1960 election in Chicago, which is another myth that was started by Sam Halpern. Interesting. Is it's it's totally implausible. I, actually, I was at you know my father had been prior to the presidency, the biggest scourge that the mafia had ever run into. Uh-huh. My father was running the rackets so committee. Your grandfather weren't, weren't friends that didn't know any no, figure. No. My father ran the rackets committee in the United States Senate. My uncle was a senator then and was on the rackets committee. My father was like the Mueller of that time, and he was calling all the mobsters, you know, Joey Gallo and Sam Giancana and Jimmy Hoffa and all these people who sent back the people who were tied in with the mob. And for four years, he was grilling them. 18 months before the 1960 election, he grilled Sam Giancana, and I was there. Mm. And because my mother would bring us every day and sit in the front row and watch him, and she would explain to us what was happening. And we were watching these you know, major mafia figures... Sam Giancana took the fifth, I think, 75 times. <laughs> and my father, and at one point my father said, is it true that when somebody offends you that you kill them and stuff them in the trunk of a car? 
He said, I take the fifth. And he said, is it true that you take your opponents and hang them on meat hooks? And he said, I take the fifth. And then he started giggling. My father said to him, are you, gig- MMA, yeah. are you giggling, Mr. Giancana? Isn't that something that only little girls do? Are you a little girl, Mr. Giancana? Wow, so, wow. Giancana hated my father. Wow. And to, to say that 18 months after that, my father, who ran my uncle's campaign, would have allowed anything to do with yeah. Sam Giancana or that Giancana would be inclined to want to help the Kennedys in any way. Mm. And all of and you know, or the idea that my grandfather would have gone behind my father's back mm. who was running that campaign and make a deal with a man that my father despised and who would have had then the power to injure the Kennedys, mm. if they, you know, if the, if all he'd have to do is publicly say, Joe Kennedy came to me and asked me, you know, to help him on the election. Mm. Oh, all of that is not only just sheer baloney, but it is, um, you know, it's completely implausible. Not a, not only that, but what they say is that the Kennedys won the election because, you know, this mafia help in Chicago. This was the CIA story. But uh-huh. even if if we had lost Illinois uh, during the 1960 election, we would have still won the election because mm. we had the we, we didn't need the state of Illinois. Uh-huh. And it's no doubt there was corruption in Illinois. There was corruption by Republicans downstate. There was corruption by Mayor Daley and his team in Chicago. And they were they were mainly and they, you know they're were many local investigations afterwards, and they all show that the corruption was designed, was targeting local campaigns, local judges, and, and not the presidential campaign. Mm. It tarnished my image of his grandfather, you know? Mm. I knew the good guy. So what was it that, why did the CIA want to destroy the Kennedy family's image. Well, so and it much. started with my grandfather. My grandfather um, was he must one of have upset a lot of people in his prime, huh? In the yeah, and in the fifties, he wrote a report saying that we should abandon the clandestine services. At that point, you know, oh, they yeah. had overthrown yeah. the government and installed a dictatorship, overthrown the, the first democratically elected government in the history of Iran in the 4,000-year history mm. of that country, a very, very popular, Mohammed Mossadegh, and we had installed a dictatorship run by the Shah of Iran. We had mm. um, the CIA had overthrown a democratically elected government, a wonderful government in Guatemala, Jacob Arbenz. Did he kill someone? A dictator. It killed many, many people. And... Huh. Um, yeah. And my grandfather wrote a report saying this is hurting America all over the world. We're supposed to be the friend of democracy. We shouldn't be overthrowing it. And people know what we're doing is. And, you know, this service is out of control. And that was one thing. And then when my uncle came in, Richard Nixon had planned the Bay of Pigs invasion. Mm. And he had been vice president, but he was in charge. He called it his brainchild. But they had left the execution to my uncle. My uncle was very unwilling to do it because his attitude was if if Cuba wants to experiment with communism, God bless them. Mm-hmm. That's their right. 
know, we experimented with government here. If communism doesn't work for them, eventually they'll overthrow it. Mm. And the worst thing would be for America to go in and tell an independent sovereign nation, particularly in a bullying way, you can't experiment with your own form of government. Yeah. And he sent that message to Castro. But Castro, by the time he came in, the CIA had trained, you know, these 2,000 Cubans, armed them, trained them in Guatemala, armed them, and, um, and they were ready to go. And my uncle said to Dulles, he said, you know, you can let them, he didn't want them to go at all, but Dulles said, if we keep them here, they're armed, and they're going to cause a lot of problems. You got to let them go, and, and there were political considerations, etc. There's a young president, less than two and a half months in office, and he said, "We don't. We, I want to make sure your assurance that there will be no involvement of the U.S. military, and they said there won't be no need as soon as these guys land in Cuba." Castro is so unpopular that there'll be a huge uprising and they'll overthrow them. They knew Dulles and Bissell and Cabal, the three CIA chiefs, and Lemitzer, who was the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, all knew they were lying. They all knew that Castro was immensely popular, that he had a very well-trained army, and that he had an intelligence service rivaling any in the world. Mm. You ever meet Castro? Yeah, I met him lots. You met Che Guevara? No. But I met Castro. In fact, I went with my wife, Cheryl Hines, and my children. I guess the last time I met him was about five years ago. But I've talked to him about the assassinations and talked to him about... No, not Batista, huh? Did I meet Batista? No. He was was long gone. I suppose he's... I don't know whatever happened to him, but he went to Miami, I think. And, oh, he must have... Yeah, they got rid of him quick, huh? Yeah. <laughs> well, he's... Uh, you know, my uncle, President Kennedy, really blamed Batista for the emergence of Castro. Mm. And, you know, it, and, and in many ways, the Castro embracing communism was, was our doing. Castro wanted, you know, first came to us, he came to New York. He tried to meet with Eisenhower. Eisenhower said he was busy playing golf. And they made him meet with Nixon, and Nixon said, we need to overthrow him. He said, I don't know if he's communist, but he, he may be under communist influence, and we need to overthrow him. And then we started, you know, making war on him. And he and we closed Standard Oil closed the only oil refinery in Cuba, which was a, a chokehold on their economy. The Cubans said, first of all, United Fruit stopped buying their sugar, so that shut down their economy. So they made a deal with the Russians. Okay, you send us oil, and we'll send you sugar. And you know we treated that as an act of war, but really it was an act of survival. And then the CIA started bombing them. They bombed a shopping center in Havana and killed a lot of people. And at that point, Castro said, okay, we're going to be communists. Because that's what we're being accused of. That's what we're going to do. Castro told me, he said, I was always communist. 
Che was communist because Che was in Guatemala in 1954 when we when the CIA overthrew our bands. He was working in a hospital taking care of poor people there. And that transformed him into a communist. But the people who came over with Castro from Mexico on the, you know, they had a they had a boat, a cabin cruiser called the Abuela, and there was I think seventy people on it who were all soldiers. And Castro told me, I said, did you choose them? Because they had a big force in, in Mexico that were training. And I said, did you choose the ones who were hardcore communists? And he said, no, the only criteria we had for who went on the abuela was their size, because we only wanted small people so we could fit more people onto the boat, because it was a tiny little boat. And he said, most of the people on the Abuela were not communists. These were, the, you know, the guys who started, who triggered the revolution from the Sierra Madre. And so it was interesting. You know. It's fascinating. Yeah. I think your life is more important. Talking about your stuff. Your family's all close. How did you feel when John Jr. Um, went through that accident? Oh, of course, I felt very bad. He was like my brother. Uh. You know, him and Mike had a pretty close relationship. Yeah, I know that he interviewed you for George. And well, he he came a, to see me when I was in prison, too. That's how I met him. Mm. He was an interesting guy. I thought he was very interesting. Yeah, that was crazy. I, I remember. he had a lot of weight on his shoulders, huh? Uh-huh. Imagine being that. Imagine being Jackie O's he, he carried it very well. He was a very happy, fun, fun-loving he was very gifted in many, many ways. Um, he was an amazing storyteller. He had a gift for mimicry. He could mimic any, um, any like whether you were Russian or Irish, he could do. He was, he was, well, he was interested in the arts. And he was interested in the arts. He was incredibly knowledgeable about History, philosophy, art, science. He's just an all-around really interesting guy. Mm. So listen, what do you think? Do you think he was like um, he was like selectively bred? Who? John? Yeah, like his his his, his <laughs> father probably said this is a this is a great um, future leader. Future, yeah, future wife. No, to his, to his wife. Oh, oh. To John's mother. Well, I think. John, my uncle. You know, old school. That's what they did. They said the best woman. Yeah, but that's not what best woman in that family. That's not what. That's not what happened in our our family. Nobody would put up with that. My uncle married Jackie because you know she was an amazing catch, and he loved her. Really. But my grandfather really had a close relationship with her. He really. Um, when he when he had dinner at his house, he always sat Jackie next to him. She was an incredible conversationist. She was she was she was my son Bobby's godmother. But she was you know she had an extraordinary intellectual curiosity. Um, she had had an extraordinary life, and she was interested in everything. She spoke um, half a dozen languages. She was interested in how other people lived and history. She, you know, she edited books because she loved knowledge. Do you, from your experience, Benoit, do you believe that she was a happy person? Or do you believe life really hit her hard? I think that she was 
you know, like any of us, Mike, nobody's happy all the time. You know, we all are lucky that we experience um, moments of joy in our life, and we're lucky if we can enjoy them and be grateful. I think she practiced being grateful, and that she, um, but that I think she was like like most of that generation of my family. She was absolutely destroyed for several years after my uncle's death. And then, you know, she was completely in love with my father. And when my father died, I think she just felt like the world had ended. Hmm. That's just so devastating. Did you know her mother? I meet Jackie's mother and at Auckland Club. Yes, yeah. <laughs> she was very interested. Who was that guy? That Her father was an interesting guy, Blackjack. Blackjack. Listen, I saw a picture <laughs> in the movie of Janet and and um, Jackie, and there's a picture of Blackjack with um, her mother, but holding her mother's friend's hand. That's a possibility. Yeah, after that picture, <laughs> they were at a they were sitting at a horse ranch. Who was yeah. Blackjack? What that's, did he do? That was Jackie's, Jackie's father. father. What did he do? And he was he was well, a mayor too, wasn't he a mayor? He was a very, you know, he was a, he was a very wealthy kind of um, sportsman, and as Mike points out, that he was had a reputation of being a playboy. But he looked no interesting. He looks a lot like um, John Junior. Yeah, he looks so. And much they called him Blackjack because mm-hmm. he had very very thick black hair. Yeah, great like hair. John. Yeah, same here. Yeah, exactly. Right there, the same Interesting. Here. I looked at it and said, wow, he looked like John. Same here. Wow. Wow. Um, well, do you do you feel like, was the CIA involved in the assassination of your uncle? Um, I would say yes. Yeah. I mean, it's very well established now that. Uh, and your father, even? Well, let me let, you know. Let me talk about two things. Absolutely. Yeah. Winning season returns at my bookie. Winning season means doubling down your first deposit. Winning season means insane props, epic bonuses, and the craziest cross sports wages. At my bookie, winning season means watching live sports and betting live sports all season long. Rejoice the NFL has returned, and that means action-packed Sundays and huge cash prizes. Get in on the action and use promo code Tyson and double your first deposit. The new players get up to $1,000 in free play designed to add more excitement to the sport that you love and the game that you love to bet on. Bet with the best in the NFL season for your chance to win big, okay? Use promo code Tyson and double your, your first deposit. Your winning season begins today only at my bookie. I think the evidence of CIA involvement with President Kennedy's assassination is incontrovertible at this mm. point, including I think it's incontrovertible that Lee Harvey Oswald was a CIA asset since 1956. Mm. Um, he was recruited by James Jesus Angleton, who was the head of counterintelligence. His, he was at that time a Marine, and he was a radar operator at um, at the uh, at the uh, U-2 air base in Japan. 
and then he defected to the Soviet Union. But it was a false defection. Mm. He actually, we now know that he defected, that he was being used as a CIA, as what they call a dangle. There was a Soviet mole in Langley, and nobody could figure out who it was. But they, but it had, they had exposed every Soviet spy since the beginning of the agency. Mm. And they were trying to expose, Angleton was trying to expose the Soviet mole, so he put a tag, a trigger on Oswald's file at Langley and then got Oswald to fake this defection, hoping that the mole would be contacted by their um, KGB superiors and told, go look at the Oswald file and find out who this guy is. Mm. And anybody who touched that file, they would know who did it. And, but it, it never happened. And so Oswald was then recalled, and he came back to the United States in sixty in sixty two, without it ever being punished, without it ever being supposedly questioned by the CIA. The State Department paid his way home. They sent him to Dallas, and in Dallas he was met by CIA assets and taken care of, placed in the job at the book depository, etc. So all of that is very, very well documented. In terms of my father, you know, here's what we now know about, and I always assume, when I was a little kid, I assumed that my uncle was killed by you know, some kind of a conspiracy, and which is what the huh. United States Senate and the United States Congress during their investigations made the same conclusion. And the Warren Commission did not, but the Warren Commission was run by Alan Dulles, uh-huh. who was the head of the CIA, yeah. and who my uncle had fired. And he became... he inculcated himself onto the Warren Commission and and lied, you know, kept them away from the CIA and basically produced a fake report. And when the church committee came, you know, in 1972, 73, 74, and investigated it, they said it was certainly a conspiracy. But I assumed that from the beginning because I was in the White House. You know, my uncle's body was in the White House. We waked him there. And I was there with my father and my aunt, um, Jackie, and, and a bunch of my cousins and brothers. When Lyndon Johnson came in the two days after my uncle was killed and said that Lee Harvey Oswald had been shot by Jack Ruby. And he told us all that news. And I went to my father and my mom and said, why did he do that? Did he love our family? Uh, No way. Wow, dude. Because why would he have done it? Yeah. Right? And I was, to me, I was a little kid, you know, a little 10-year-old kid saying, why did this guy do it? It turned out my father's initial reaction was that the CIA had killed his brother. He, um, you know, he questioned. Uh, he questioned all the head of the CIA at that time and a bunch of his contacts in the Cuban division of the CIA. And then, um, two years later, he asked Frank McAwitz and Walter Sheridan, who was his kind of security guy, to look into 
Jack Ruby. And what they found was that Ruby not only had was a mobster who had worked for the Giancana family and was presently working for Carlos Marcello's family, which was all tied in with the CIA. He was also a gun runner for the CIA to Cuba. Um, so, I, but I had always assumed that my father, that Sirhan killed my father. Uh-huh. And because Sir Hannah confessed to it, and there, and you know there was a trial supposedly, but a couple of years ago, when I started investigating it for this book that I was writing, it you know I I looked at the Paul Schrade who was with my father when he was shot, as a union leader, one of the heads of the UA, United Auto Workers. He was the guy who recruited Cesar Chavez into the labor movement huh. and, and he introduced them to my father and they became best friends mm. and so Paul was very very close to my father and was with him the first bullet that Sir Han fired um, hit Paul Schrade in the head huh. and Paul Schrade has never believed that Sir Han killed my father wow. he knows that he shot him but Sirhan, no, and, and so I and up, Paul forced me to sit down to read the autopsy report stuff I never wanted to do, and to look at all the evidence that has accumulated since my father's death. And so Ethel's your mother, right? Ethel's my mother. Right. So Sirhan was there was seventy seven eyewitnesses in the kitchen of the Ambassador Hotel when my father was killed. And many, many of them had a, a a view of what happened. A very few of them could view the whole scene, but they could view parts of it. Everybody, without exception, places their hand from five feet to ten feet away from my father in front of him. He never got behind him. He was always in front with a table between them, a steam table. Sirhan fired two shots at my father. The first one hit Paul Schrade in the head. The second one hit a door jam at my father's head level behind my father. Then he was grabbed by Carl Olker, who was the um, who was the concierge at the Ambassador Hotel, and by Rafer Johnson and six other people. There was a dog pile. And they all piled on him, and they grabbed The first thing they did was grab his hand. They directed in the opposite direction, and they could not get the gun away from him. And he was powerful as a, like a Superman, they said. Mm. So they were all trying to take the gun away Don't from him. Don't big. Yeah, he's a little guy. And he fired six shots in the other direction. All of them hit people. Huh. One person got hit twice, but all those bullets are accounted for. There were only eight chambers in his gun. And two were fired toward my father and six in the opposite direction. And we know what happened to every one of those bullets. My father was shot four times. One of the shots, and they all four times were from behind. What? And with a gun that was... Um, that was, and they were all what the coroner Thomas Noguchi said, contact shots. 
and the barrel of the gun was touching my father when the when the trigger was pulled, and he had carbon tattoos from all four shots. One of the shots went harmlessly through his sleeve and through his shoulder pad. All of the shots were fired from a low angle toward the ceiling. Whoever fired those shots was standing behind him, concealing the gun and firing at the same time that Sir Han was distracting people, essentially. And the person who almost certainly fired those shots was a security guard who was holding my father's arm at that time called Eugene St. Caesar. And a dozen people saw him with his gun drawn. My father fell back on him, and as he fell, he turned and pulled off Cesar's clip-on tie. Cesar lied to the police about his gun. He told many, many different stories about when he had drawn his gun. He lied. He said he did own a twenty-two. The police didn't talk to him that night, didn't confiscate his gun. Uh, the time they talked to him, he said, yeah, I owned a twenty-two, but I sold it a month before the shooting. As it turns out, that was a lie. He sold it a month after the shooting, and he sold it to a man who worked at him with him in the high-security section of the Lockheed factory here in Los Angeles, who then moved to Arkansas, later talked to investigators and said, yeah, he had a receipt for when he was sold, and it was sold in July. My father was killed in June. And Caesar told him at that time, um, this gun was used in a crime, so don't talk to anybody about it. Caesar, it, as it turns out, was, is a CIA asset. He died about three weeks ago. And he died in the Philippines where he's lived for the past three decades. And um, But he's almost certainly the person who who killed my father. Now, his job as a security guard that night, he got five days before when it was already known that my father was going to be speaking there. We don't know exactly what happened, but there are... And then, you know, the investigation was a botched investigation that appears to have been deliberately botched by the LAPD. It was run by people within the LAPD, all of whom had... They were, there was a special unit created called Special Unit Senator to investigate my father's death. Almost all the members of that unit were ex-CIA agents, who had um, trained in the CIA farm in, in Virginia and shipped down to Latin America to do dirty tricks work there and then brought back for this investigation. And they destroyed, before Sir Hans' trial, they, they destroyed 1,200 pieces of evidence, all, including all the bullets. And, and, and about... 1,200 photographs as well that were taken in the room that night. Um, so, um, you know, there's a lot of questions. There's never, there really, I believed that there had been a trial. As it turns out, there wasn't a trial. Sir Hans' attorney was an attorney who somehow, and nobody can explain how, he was a mob attorney. Mm. who was representing Johnny Roselli, 
who had been, at that time, there was a famous trial in Los Angeles called the Friars Club trial. You know what the Friars Club is? Please. What, what is the it? The Friars Club is where they started roasts. Oh, okay. And it was, it was all the Rat Pack um, actors like Joey Bishop and Frank Sinatra and Dean uh, and Dean Martin Sammy and Davis. Yeah, all of those guys were members of Friar Club, and they'd get together every couple of months and roast one of their members. Mm-hmm. And to get in there, you had to be wearing a tux. And they also had a gambling. Uh, a poker game or a gambling casino. I'm not sure which, but there was a poker game in there. And as it turns out, Johnny Roselli was the owner of the club. Johnny Roselli was the CIA's liaison to the mob. Wow, that's a trip. You know, I used to read and, about him. He was in the 20s, too. Yeah, he was an interesting guy. He was a devout Catholic. He, ne- he didn't have a home address, um, but he mm. was tied in with Giancana, but also Carlos Masalo and Traficante. He had installed secret cameras in the Friars Club so they could read everybody's cards, and they were cheating. <laughs> he got caught, and he was on trial at the time my father was killed, and it was a huge trial. During that trial, his attorney got arrested for having the grand jury transcripts, which is illegal for anybody to have. It's a serious crime. You go to jail for it. And somehow he had gotten the transcripts of the grand jury. So, um, And clearly the mafia had bribed somebody to get that, given it to the attorney. The attorney wouldn't tell where he got it, but he was facing criminal charges, also disbarment. And in the middle of all that, he was somehow appointed as Sir Han's attorney. He told Sir Han to plead guilty. Um, if Sir Han had pleaded innocent, there was no way that he could have gotten convicted because the bullets that were in his gun, the bullets that killed my father, did not match the ballistics of the bullets in his gun or the bullets that hit the other eight people in the room. Cover up big time. Whoa. Um, but he was told, and so anyway, you know, Sir Han has no memory, has said since that date he has no memory of what happened, but there's a lot of hints about kind of how he got in that state. Was he in uh, prison? Yeah, he's in prison. I actually went to how see him he? about, he's like 70, maybe 75 or something. Wow. He, I went and, and met with him uh, about... I don't know, last year. So, Bobby, how do you, you know, both your father and your uncle, you're really your, I mean, your your whole lineage, your family lineage has been about, in a big way, to me, protecting the people or being for the people's rights. And, you know, your uncle had that, you know, going back to this feud with the CIA, he had that whole speech about doing away with secret societies, etc., and getting rid of these clandestine yeah, exactly. operations. Um, and do you feel like, like, how do you interpret this in yourself? Like, is this about, is this almost sort of, 
I don't want to say the price, but of standing up for what's good and right in the world, shining the light into the darkness. Like, how do you rectify this in yourself? Uh, you know, I don't really think about it in those terms. I think they, uh, you know, they had a very idealistic view of this country. They thought America. They saw America as an exemplary nation. They felt that we were. Um, and and by that I mean in the best sense of the word that we, we were supposed to be an example, a shining example of what human beings could accomplish through self-governance um, in a humane and just and democratic system. They believed in free market capitalism, um, but they believed in a humane system. And they also believed that the biggest danger to our country would come from entanglements, foreign entanglements that would um, that would make us, that would turn us into a militarized nation, mm. and they spent a lot of time fighting that. Mm. And I, you know, I think to me that is the most important part of their legacy. Yeah. Um, you know, I think they were, they did have a battle with the CIA, and I think. Um, you know, that probably had something to do with both of their deaths. Mm. Wow. Um, and I won my championship on November 22nd. Which championship? Uh, my first championship in 1986, November 22nd. Wow. That's President Kennedy's anniversary of his death. Yes. Wow. That's interesting. Mike, how did you decide to put a tattoo on your face? What is that? Are you, are you? I just thought um, that was who I was. Yeah, that's a real commitment. I don't know. Life is life is a commitment. Yeah. <laughs> um, commitment. Bobby, you um, you've done a lot of great work as well yourself with the environment your environmental uh, initiatives but right now one of your biggest missions is shining a light on this vaccine issue but, uh, do you want to talk about birds for a second yeah, yeah. sure if you want uh, I'd love to That's... hear about his experience. Yeah. and then I really want to talk about that so. yeah yeah absolutely Oh, like me, I've been with birds. I've been flying birds since I was nine years old. Some bully kids um, picked on me, bullied, and made me clean their pigeon coop and be their gopher. Like, if their birds are out in bad condition, they're flying, they get tired, they're flying under the roof, so I have to go on the roof and scare the birds off the roof <laughs> or go to the store for these guys because they're lazy and stuff, buy them cigarettes or buy them some juices or cookies and stuff. And so... um I just wanted to be around the birds all the time, so I was willing to be this guy's gopher, slave, whatever it be, for I can get more advanced and educated on the pigeons. And so um, one day I I was a little criminal kid. I, stole, I broke in somebody's house and stole some money and stuff, and I went and brought like 100 pigeons or more. Mm. And I showed somebody all my pigeons, and he went and told some other big kids where my pigeons were. And I was trying to fight them; they were stealing my birds. And then my mother came up and came up and scared them. So one guy had stole one of my birds and ran out. And I was saying, "Please come on, get my birds back, please." And he said, "No, you fat fucking nigga, I'm giving you shit." And he popped my bird's head off and poured blood on me. And uh, that was the first fight I ever had in my life. 
And then I kind of, um, I used to get picked on all the time, but then ever since somebody saw me fight, everybody wanted me to be their friend. Mm. And that's how I began, that fighting guy. I was everybody's friend because I, was, I wasn't afraid to fight anyone. Well, and your relationship with pigeons was sealed in blood. Yeah, and that was I have them now. Mm. You know, you used to all have birds today. Uh, you have birds today. <laughs> Listen, I broke my other fence, my other phone. If I would show you my pigeon coop, you would say, what the hell? My pigeon coop is like a house. <laughs> yeah, there's no doubt about it, man. That's just who I was. That's what my whole life is about pigeons. Uh-uh. It got me out of, um, it just got me out of trouble. I still got in trouble, but it just... I wouldn't be dumb. I would have nowhere to go because they were bullying me in school, and that's why I didn't go to school because I was scared of getting bullied, so I just flew pigeons. Uh. Yeah, well, I started when I was around the same age. And I got, I had Hungarian homers, and we would raise them. I lived in Virginia at that time, but we would raise them. Um, you know, you, 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 um, when you're raising them, you go farther and farther from yeah. your house. And train Start from phone. one mile, next thing you know, you're at 250 miles. Wow. Yeah. A really good one, 250, even 500 miles. 500 is nothing for them. Well, you know, they just sold that one for $1.5 million. That one pigeon, yeah. That one pigeon. Wow. I looked it up, listen, I looked it up yesterday. <laughs> Armando, he was uh, yeah. two Chinese bidders. Yeah, Chinese people. They're, they're the champions now in pigeon racing, yeah. the Chinese. Mm. God, they listen, can go that far. No, but listen, let me explain something to you. I would go to foreign countries, um, Uzbekistan, uh-huh. Moscow, um, it's this name in Romania. I would go, and I would go around people. It needs to be the, um, under the administration, politics, the politician. And I would say, hey, who's the biggest pigeon fancier around here? And I would say, who? And they said, oh, really? And they would take me, and these guys would have pigeon coops that would just... They were dwarf houses. They look like this. It's just, they must be the, the local crime lord or something because they have, it's just, it's amazing. Thousands of acres of the farm, and they have these big elaborate pigeon coops that cost millions of dollars. They have staff that take care of them, and the food, they feed them constantly. They cleans it constantly, automatic. It's just, you can't believe it. It's amazing. The pigeon world is just amazing. Why? Huh? Why? Because, um... God giving us that opportunity to intermingle in with nature. You know what happened? Like I was talking yesterday, I had a big ego. You know, I'm thinking I'm somewhere in this world, and um, I was looking at the guy Wayne Dyer. I was uh-huh. to him, yeah. and he said, "When you look out this world, what do you see?" And he explains, "Um, what you don't know, you see perfection." Uh-huh. The world is perfected already. Regardless of what we think about it, what we think about the racism, about what we think about the, the politics here and the, the rights and every this is perfected. Who are we to question it? We could change it, but this is perfected. Mm. And that's why we have um that's why we have a complex with the world, because we don't like it. Mm. But we don't like the perfection of the world. This is the way the universe made it. And we disagree with the universe. Mm. They just like people, mm. and all of different personalities. Um, you know, it, you can tell the, the the females from the males, and the way that they behave, and the strategies that they use inside the coop, and 
You know, they're genius at traveling or all things. I could sit and watch pigeons for uh, weeks and not get bored. I love well, that. That's what I used to when I used to be when I trained in another state, uh, another country. I had people film my pigeons, and they sent me the tapes, and I watched it for hours. Just my pigeons on the coop flying, <laughs> watch them in the air flying, watch them land. Well, they used to carry messages too, right? They still do. They yeah. still do. In Israel, they still do it. Yeah. It's amazing. So you, since you were a little boy, you you raised pigeons. Yeah, I raised pigeons and I and raised them. Um, and then uh, how do you raise them? Well, you oh, raise you know you train them. Money part. <laughs> oh, <laughs> um, but man. The way that we used to do it, they do it differently today. But the way that we used to do it is, we would all put our pigeons on the same train. People from the in the same area, put them on the same train. The train would go down to Delaware. Sometimes people would have a truck, and the conductor would release them all at once. Oh, sometimes hundreds of them. Yeah, and then they and then when your pigeon your pigeon flies back into your coop, there's a pigeon door that lets him in, but he can't get out. When he goes through that, you grab the pigeon, you take off its band, you clock. run it down to the yeah, you clock it down. You have to go back then. You have to go to the post office and get it time stamped, and that's how you would win the race. And you're, you you would make your pigeons go. You know, you would train them to go farther and farther and farther. So I take my pigeons to school with me and release them, and you know they fly home, and then I get somebody to drive me out in the country and release them. And, the biggest race is Sun City, South Africa. They they um they have the most multi million dollar race. Wow. Yeah. Have you been? In, have you seen it, Mike? Personally? Well, not personally, but I've seen it on film. It's yeah. Amazing! You can Have you been there for that? No. 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 I, I kind of switched to hawks when I was. Hey, uh, listen. I did too. Know why? Because they were attacking my birds, so I laid traps for them. So I catch them, and yeah. then I start raising them. Yeah, I was gonna say, when aren't hawks? They they'll predator. Yeah, they're not friendly with pigeons. Yeah, they'll eat pigeons. Yeah, I seen a, I seen an eagle grab a of um, owl, killed it, and ate his heart. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Birds of prey, man. They're vicious. Um, <clears throat> so right now, Bobby, you have a documentary that's out, Vax 2, and it's really tackling this issue of vaccines and really the the horrible side effects that these things cause. Um, you know, this has been an issue that my wife and I have been dealing with. We have an eight-year-old daughter, and... We were talking about it a little bit earlier, but, you know, vaccines, we live in this, we live in this country where, you know, Western medicine, people have become so dogmatized by doctors and Western medicine and giving our health over to these healthcare professionals who, you know, it's, it's kind of, it's a pharmaceutical model, right? Right. Uh, rather than you know, um, rather than building your immune system, which is you know, is like a Ferrari mm-hmm. our immune system, we've kind of adopted this pharmaceutical model, which is more 
about treating symptoms. And, you know, I'm not saying anything bad about doctors because doctors have saved my life, and I'm very grateful to the medical profession. But, sure. um, you know, nowadays, particularly with pediatricians, we're seeing this explosion of chronic illness in our children. And it's not just autism. Autism has dropped from 1 in 10,000 in my generation to 1 in 34 in my kids' generation. It's all all the allergic diseases like peanut allergies, autoimmune diseases like diabetes and rheumatoid arthritis, and all the neurodevelopmental diseases like ADD, ADHD, uh, speech delay, narcolepsy, narcolepsy, tics. Um, ASD, autism, and all of those diseases became epidemic in 1989. So if you were born, according to HHS, Health and Human Services, if you were born prior to 1989, which is the year they changed the vaccine schedule, your chance of having a chronic disease is 12%. If you were born after 1989, it's 54%. Wow. And... All of the diseases that have become epidemic, there's about 300 of them. Obesity in that disease? What? Obesity in there? Obesity is in there, and obesity is linked to vaccines. Interesting. All of those um, injuries that have become epidemic, there's about 300 diseases. Every one of them are listed as side effects on the manufacturer's inserts for the 72 vaccines that are now mandated for our children. The thing that people have to understand is that the four companies that make all 72 of those vaccines, which is Pfizer, uh, Pfizer's Merck, Glaxo, Merck, and Sanofi, um, all of those companies are convicted felons. And not only that, they're serial felons. Their business model is committing felonies. These companies, in the last 10 years collectively, have paid $35 billion in penalties, damages, fines for falsifying science, for defrauding regulators, for lying to doctors, and for killing hundreds of thousands of people. Vioxx, which was Merck's flagship product, killed between 120,000 and 500,000 Americans. This was a pill that Merck was selling as a headache pill. Right. And Merck knew caused heart attacks and killed people, and they didn't tell anybody. And they knew a certain, you know, we got the spreadsheets that show their being counters, their accountants, that this is, you're going to kill so many people per dose, we can still make more money, even if they all sue us. And in the end, they killed, you know, up to half a million Americans. And they got away with it. They got, they paid $7 billion in fines. Nobody went to jail. And this is, probably you know. $100 million in profits. Yeah. So this is a company, these, it, it requires kind of a cognitive dissonance to uh-huh. believe that these companies that are lying and cheating on every other pharmaceutical product, every other medical device that they create, are somehow found Jesus with vaccines and aren't lying to us. And the thing is with vaccines, vaccines is the only place they could never get caught because it's illegal in this country to sue a vaccine company. So Congress passed a law in 1986 that said 
no matter how negligent that company is, no matter how malicious they are, no matter how um, toxic the product, you no matter how grievous your injury, Man. you cannot sue them. If you kill somebody, if your company kills somebody in China, you're gonna die. Huh. Yeah. Not here. Yeah. If, if, and if, they've set up a whole court some system. With some Vaseline or some mouthwash or something, an accident, somebody get an allergic reaction, and you, you and that's your business partner, your, your family's your partner too? <laughs> Come on. Right here. Boom, 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 you're dead. And then they sell your organs. <laughs> they don't play around. Fuck. Um, so these, you know, you. They can't get caught. The only way that they got caught on all those other cases is that private plaintiff's attorneys sued them on behalf of an injured client. And then during the discovery process, uncovered all this evidence, documents showing criminal activity. Yes. Shit, that sounds like some lawyer shit. Good (laughs) shit, man. Good lawyer shit. (laughs) I could hire you. I could hire you for a case like that. If that happened to me, I could hire you. If that happens to you. Yeah. For sure. We're calling Bobby, dude. (laughs) Um, The companies, you know, there's zero liability. There's no incentive for them to make vaccines safe. They don't have to do. They don't have to spend any money on marketing or advertising because they're mandated for seventy-four million kids to take whether they like it or not. Right. And um, and they don't have to test vaccines. It's the only medical product that doesn't have to be safety tested. And the reason for that is it's an artifact of. CDC's legacy as the public health service and that agency was a quasi-military agency. That's why people at CDC have military ranks like Surgeon General. Uh. And and the vaccine program was conceived as a national security defense against a biological attack on our country. So they wanted to make sure if the Russians attacked us with anthrax or some other biological agent that we would be able to quickly formulate a vaccine, deploy it to 200 million people without regulatory impediments. And so they said, if we call it medicine, we need to safety test it. Let's call it something else. We'll call it a biologic, and we'll exempt them from safety testing. Oh, the companies when they made this sort of gold rush in 1989 to add new vaccines to the schedule, took advantage of that and said, hey, we don't have to safety test these things. And because of that, you know, we now have products that nobody knows what the risks are. We do know that the same year that we passed all of that, you know, they put them on the schedule, you had this explosion of chronic disease. And, you know, our children are now the sickest generation in history. And CDC is, shakes its shrugs its shoulders and say, if you say, where's this autism epidemic coming from? They say, we don't know. Right. Um, where is the obesity epidemic coming from? Where is the diabetes epidemic coming from? Why do our kids have peanut allergies, which essentially didn't exist prior to 1989? How about all the attention deficit stuff? Yeah, and all of that as is well. directly linked to vaccines in the scientific Wait literature on our website. We have 1,400 studies, peer-reviewed studies, and published on NIH's website, PubMed, mm-hmm. linking it to all of, uh, linking various vaccines to all of those injuries. So, what are they doing this for? Money? 
well, they're making $60 billion a year selling us vaccines, but they're making $500 billion a year selling the remedies for the injuries caused by vaccines. Wow. So the diabetes medication, the Adderall, the Ritalin, the Concerta, um, the, the Advair inhalers, the albuterol inhalers, the anti-seizure medications, all of those, you know, this is a, a really great business plan for these companies. You make people sick, and then you sell them the lifetime cure. And measles, wow. they weren't making any money. If you get measles or chicken pox, the cure is chicken soup and vitamin A, and you can't patent either of those. Huh. And you're well in a week. There's self-limiting illnesses that go away in a week. But if you can give somebody that vaccine and make them, you know, diabetic for life, and you got a permanent customer or ADD or ADHD, and you know, many of the vaccines are for illnesses for which there is zero risk. A baby, a one-day-old baby, has zero risk of getting hepatitis B right. if, if his mother doesn't have it, yeah. which every mother is tested for. You can only get it from, you know, unprotected sex or from sharing needles. So, um, you know, why are we giving one-day-old babies a vaccine for hepatitis B? And they admit the vaccine only lasts five years. That baby is not going to have sex with a prostitute in the first five years of life. There's zero risk. And yet it's a very, very dangerous vaccine. And I'm not anti-vaccine. I'm very, you know. Right. I just want safe vaccines. I want vaccines tested. And what I've said to people is test them against an inert placebo. Not one of them has ever been. Or test them against an unvaccinated population. So show me a vaccinated population and an unvaccinated population. And show me that the vaccinated population is healthier. And if you can do that... I will post that study on my website, and I will retire from this work and go back to working for a waterkeeper full-time, which is what I want to be doing. Yeah, yeah. Well, um, you know, so many people, when you start talking about this issue, will just scream blasphemy. And, uh, you know, it's really interesting in the documentary you talk about how doctors literally know nothing about what these vaccines actually do or don't do. Or the side well, it's effects. It's the doctors involved. themselves who are saying that. You know, we have right. all these doctors in that film saying we were taught nothing. We were taught yeah. vaccines work. They're safe. They're effective. If you don't give them to children, the children will die. So make sure you give them all to them. Right. And that's it. They're yeah. not taught about what the ingredients are, how they're made, what the side effects are. And um, that's a problem in itself. You know, that's, that's a big problem. You know, that to me should raise flags for anyone who has questions about this issue. So, you know, I think it's also important, like you're saying, you're not anti-vaccine. You're talking about let's look at what's really going on and let's make better decisions and let's have at least something safe going out to the public. And let's have a public debate right. in America. Yeah. We ought to be able to talk about it. it shouldn't be a sin or a crime to talk about something. Yeah. And, you know, and they called me anti-vax because of a way of, of discrediting me and right, marginalizing right. me and shutting But I've never said anything to anybody to make anybody think I'm anti-vax. I've been trying, fighting for 35 years, suing people to get mercury out of fish. Nobody calls me anti-fish. <laughs> you know, I just want safe fish. Right. And I want, you know, vaccines that are safe, too. 
if they work, let's show that they work in, a, in an authentic safety test. Yeah, yeah. It's important, man. I suggest everybody go check out this documentary. See Vaxxed 1 and then check out Vaxxed 2. And, you know, go to my Instagram site, robertfkennedyjr.com, and our Robert F. Kennedy Jr., and, and go to childrenshealthdefense.org because we have all the science laid out there. It's a very reader-friendly site, and you can actually get the truth there that's censored in all of the other social media. It's awesome. Man, Bobby, I, I I can't say thank you enough. I don't know if there's anything else. Mike, do you have any other questions, man? I don't know. Do you, you keep in touch with the, the Fitzgeralds and stuff? That side of your family? The family's still um, tight? We're very tight. Our family is very, very close. There's now, you know, my children's uh, favorite part of the year. We spend fourth weekend and then a lot of the summer together and there's about they have about a hundred and I think a hundred and five cousins wow you know I've been, been to Hannesport before we did um special olympics there before oh yeah that's they awesome striving all yeah. time. <laughs> I was yeah, in a documentary very very close to Anthony Anthony's pretty awesome <laughs> yeah he is I was in a documentary a few years ago called Take Your Pills that Maria Shriver and her daughter, Christina Schwarzenegger, produced, tackling Adderall and Ritalin yeah, and all these attention that. deficit medications because yeah. I took a lot of Adderall during my NFL career, which I think was a direct, you know, that was me medicating my cognitive uh, deficiency through all of the head trauma and the concussions I had suffered and Adderall lifted me out of that the problem was I started to abuse it and it really fucked me up yeah. through that um, but so power to the people man thank you Evan thank you Mike thank you Rob thank you so much for your time and uh, you're definitely a, a friend here so anytime you want to come back you're more than welcome Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for having me. All right, everybody. Well, that was an awesome episode. Mike, what can you say, brother? I think this was really awesome. I'm very grateful that he came. Thank you very much, Rob. Me too. Thank you for your time. Um, until next time, what are your websites again? How do it's, they get in touch with you? It's uh, my Instagram. Uh, Robert F. Kennedy Jr.'s Instagram. And Children's Health Defense. Children's.org. Children's Health Defense.org. You'd find all the science, everything that's going on. Stay up to date on everything there. I highly suggest if you have children and for yourself, just educate yourself on, on the truth of these issues. Um, until next time, everybody, I'm Evan Britton. I'm Mike Tyson. We're out of here. Thank you. Thanks, boys. Thank you. Wow. That was awesome. Hi, this is Daniel Roof, the Real GM Radio Podcast, and I want to take a minute to talk about DeAndre Ayton, the number one pick of the 2018 draft. 
Definitely has not gotten the attention of high-profile lottery picks Luka Doncic and Trey Young during the early going, but he has been excellent and a key part of the Phoenix Suns being on the precipice of the NBA Finals. Aiton is presenting a matchup nightmare for the LA Clippers that Rudy Gobert simply was not. Gobert is a wonderful player, deserving Defensive Player of the Year, but Aiton puts more pressure on opposing defenses. He's used his size mismatches for offensive rebounds, and he's also been able to contest shots around the basket and make life hard on the Clippers there too. So it is a huge performance for him, averaging 20 points, 13 and a half rebounds through the first four games of the series. And it's been so exciting to see a physically talented player really come into his own on the brightest stage so far of his career. Hi, this is Daniel Rue from the Real GM Radio Podcast. It's that time of year again, and all eyes are now on the pro basketball, hockey playoffs, and Major League Baseball season. BetOnline.net has all the action. Basketball, the playoff battles continue as their teams make the run for the championship. America's pastime is in full swing. And let's not forget about hockey's chase for the cup. BetOnline has you covered if you love golf, MMA, championship boxing, they have that too. BetOnline is the fastest and easiest way to check in on all your favorite sports, the news, scores, and odds. So head to the website, use your mobile device, and bring home the game with BetOnline.net. 